It's Wednesday, August 19th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Some good coronavirus news today as scientists are seeing that the body does show signs of lasting immunity to COVID-19, even in those that only had mild symptoms. We still don't know how long immunity will last. That will have to be looked at in real time. But recent studies show that antibodies, B cells, and T cells are all doing their jobs. Catherine Wu, science reporter at The New York Times, joins us for what we are learning about coronavirus immunity. Next, you might have heard about the Boogaloo Boys, a group of Hawaiian shirt-wearing anti-government insurgents. They are hoping for a second civil war and often organized in gun-toting militias. Vice News followed Mike Dunn, a 19-year-old man organizing against gun control, and saw how he rose into the Boogaloo movement. The movement evolved from an obscure internet meme to a national security concern in the span of just a few months. Tess Owen, senior reporter at Vice News, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. And if the immune responses we're seeing at this point in recovery are looking pretty similar to immune responses that we know are durable against other viruses that act in much the same way, researchers are saying that could be a really good sign that there is durable immunity to this virus. Joining us now is Catherine Wu, science reporter at The New York Times. Thanks for joining us, Catherine. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. One of the lingering questions that we had about coronavirus are questions that having to do with immunity. How long are you immune from COVID-19 after you've had it and recovered? Or questions, obviously, when it comes to vaccines, if you get a vaccine and it produces an immune response, how long are you going to have those antibodies ready to fight the virus? So there's been a bunch of recent studies that have kind of started looking at this, and we're actually getting some good news out of this. It seems that the body does have a lasting immunity to this, even in people that only have mild symptoms of COVID-19. So, Catherine, tell us a little bit more about what these studies are saying. I think I will start off with the not amazing news, <laughs> just to get it out of the way. And the short version of it is we don't fully know how long the immune response to this virus is going to last. We can only see as far out as things have happened, and that's, you know, about eight or nine months, even in the best cases. And that's really only a few people. But studies are starting to come out. And what researchers are really trying to do is they're measuring the existing immune response in people and trying to compare that to what we've seen in immune responses to other viruses that we've studied in the past. And if the immune responses we're seeing at this point in recovery are looking pretty similar to immune responses that we know are durable against other viruses that act in much the same way, researchers are saying that could be a really good sign that there is durable immunity to this virus. And what that actually means is the virus tries to infect you again, your body will either fight it off, or even if you do get infected, the illness won't be as bad the second time. Part of it is, is kind of you mentioned, we're studying this in real time as the pandemic kind of develops. So we don't know how long it is until we've actually reached that point or when people are getting a second wave and getting exposed to it and sick again. You know, we don't know if it's seasonal in that sense of it. So we have to kind of follow the immune responses as they're going right now. And the other part of it is, too, is that in our bodies, we have three different mechanisms that are helping fight the viruses. So we have our antibodies, we have B cells, we have T cells, and they each serve different functions. Maybe an antibodies don't last as long in the body, but you have your B cells and your T cells that can remember these things and fight it off later. 
And I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind. There's been a lot of attention on antibodies, which are these proteins that kind of hang out in the blood. If you just take a small sample of someone's blood, you can measure antibody levels pretty easily. But studying the cells that make them, and those are B cells, is a lot harder. Now you're dealing with something living. You have to make sure you can nurture it in the lab and you don't kill it. Otherwise, you can't really study what it does. It's just a lot harder to deal with the thing that makes the antibody. But antibodies are inanimate. They're proteins. They can't reproduce themselves on their own. So when they go away, people shouldn't be alarmed. What's more important is that the body retains the potential to make those antibodies in the future. And that's why researchers are looking at B cells. It's kind of like a product might expire, but as long as you still have the factory around, you can rest pretty well assured that you'll be able to have some of that product in the future. So if people are seeing antibody levels declining, that's totally normal. It just means the body has fought off the infection once, it wants to devote its resources elsewhere. But if it comes back, the body still has the capacity to make those disease-fighting molecules again. And these studies are showing that the B cells are retaining the memory of the virus, at least, right? It seems so. Researchers are finding B cells in the body that can recognize the virus. And that's a pretty good sign. Hopefully, you know, these B cells stick around and are there to sort of react to the virus in the future. You know, just to clarify, we're not seeing protection per se. These people haven't been deliberately infected again, but the potential is there. The researchers put it to me this way. All the pieces are there for protection. And while we haven't seen it yet, it's like a lot of things are really falling into place. And that's a very good sign. And as I mentioned at the beginning, they're also finding that all the elements are there in people that had mild symptoms from COVID-19. Obviously, they want to know a little bit more about asymptomatic people and then people that really had a hard time dealing with COVID-19. But at least for the broadest amount of people, they're finding that we could have some type of lasting immunity, hopefully. I think that's one of the most important things about the studies that are coming out now. Certainly early on, it was easiest to study people who were in hospitals and really struggling with the disease. But so many people get this infection and end up having pretty mild symptoms, maybe some moderate symptoms, but they don't actually check into hospitals. And so it's really important to understand what a really large swath of the population is experiencing when they encounter this virus. There's also sometimes been this idea that maybe immune memory works a little bit like neural memory. Think of the most traumatic experiences in your life. Those are super memorable, whereas something that seems like it's really every day, that's going to stick in your brain for much less time. That doesn't really seem to be the case here. It seems that, you know, even if the body didn't have to struggle mightily to fight off this virus, it still left a lasting impression, if that makes sense. And so some of those concerns may be diminished at this point. We don't have a guarantee, but it's looking promising. And this is also good news, at least for some optimism about when we finally get a vaccine and beyond that, you know, when people talk about herd immunity, these signs are are good for those things as well. Yeah, I think that's fair, though I will caveat that and say a natural infection where the actual virus infects you is probably going to look a little bit different than your body's reaction to a vaccine, which has been made by scientists. It doesn't always include every single part of the virus. But it is an encouraging sign. Certainly, ideally, the vaccine produces the same kind of immune responses without all the negative consequences. So I think it does bode well, but we can't guarantee that it'll look exactly the same when we're starting to look in these vaccine trials and seeing what immune responses people are producing. So people shouldn't be alarmed if the data don't look exactly the same. You did make one mention in your article about research in animals and how that could help fill a few gaps. And there are a few uh, macaques that have been 
infected with coronavirus and they seem to be safe from contracting it again. That's right. And all the usual caveats, animals aren't people, but (laughs) other primates are pretty close. And so that's been really helpful to see. We can't do those experiments with people. That's obviously not the most ethical thing we could be spending our time on. But it's really encouraging to see that these other animals that have these really complex immune systems are able to fight off the virus a second time. And hopefully that'll be true in people as well. This is the news that we've kind of been looking forward to that you can only develop over time. You can only study this over time and how it plays out in the human body. So good news for now, and hopefully it actually sticks and it holds to be true. Catherine Wu, science reporter at The New York Times, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I see I got my boys here in the Hawaiian shirts. And everybody knows what that means. Hey, officers, that means boogaloo. Uh, a lot of people believe differently about the boogaloos, but the core belief is the fact that we stand for freedom, individual freedom of all, and we're willing to defend anyone's rights to those freedoms. Joining us now is Tess Owen, senior reporter at Vice News. Thanks for joining us, Tess. Thanks for having me. wanted to talk about an interesting article you wrote, The Making of a Boogaloo Boy. Now, my first experience with the boogaloo movement or boogaloo boys in general was just very recently after the George Floyd protest. There was talks of antagonizers, people that were not Black Lives Matter protesters, just other people that wanted to cause mayhem. And some of the stories pointed to people armed with guns and wearing Hawaiian shirts specifically. And these were the Boogaloo Boys. So it's a group that organizes primarily online. They're looking for a second civil war or some type of uprising. And they have traces to a movie from the 80s, Breaking Two Electric Boogaloo. That's kind of how their name evolved from there. But they're an interesting group of people. They uh, have scattered ideologies. Most of them find kind of similarities in opposition to gun laws. But they're kind of this growing group. And you followed a certain guy. His name is Mike Dunn and kind of noticed his evolution to becoming a person involved in the Boogaloo Boy movement here. So, Tess... Give us a better explanation, if you can, please, of who are Boogaloo Boys and the Boogaloo Movement, and then we'll go into the story about Mike Dunn. You summed that up pretty well. I would describe it as an insurgent anti-government movement that, as you say, it's pulled in an array of ideologies from hardline libertarians and anti-government extremists and some white supremacists. They're pretty new. It's more of a kind of a movement rather than a structured group. And Boogaloo, as you said, it started as kind of as a meme to refer to a violent uprising or a second civil war. And it started on these kind of fringe parts of the Internet. And then about six months ago, it kind of had started growing into this movement, primarily on Facebook. And I think the first time that anyone had even heard of a Boogaloo boy was interestingly at a rally in Virginia in January a big gun rights rally, and most of them were kind of, you know, regular gun owners and militia types. And there was one group there who had patches on their jackets saying Boogaloo Boys and logos that we now associate with the movement now. So those were kind of like the first sighting of the Boogaloo Boys in the wild, I guess. But at that time, I think a lot of extremism experts hadn't even really heard of them. They just weren't on the radar. And then, as you said, I think they really started to kind of come out moving from the internet into the real world, first it was in response to lockdowns, COVID-19. And so they started showing up at these anti-lockdown protests with guns, or they were showing up, for example, to 
quote, defend businesses that had chosen to stay open in defiance of lockdown orders after George Floyd's death in Minneapolis. Then the Boogaloo movement kind of latched on to the Black Lives Matter protests and started showing up, you know, in their Hawaiian shirts with guns and people didn't really know what to make of them. They couldn't tell whether they were there to protest against Black Lives Matter. And I don't think it was also necessarily clear. Some groups, I think, have seen themselves or try to position themselves as allies, whether or not how far you want to kind of go with that or believe it. And then others, it seems like were there to just exploit the unrest to advance their own violent agendas, which in some cases was they wanted to seek a violent standoff with police or hope to prompt one side or the other into shooting. It's interesting, really, to try to pin them down. It's very difficult, as we were saying, the ideologies are all over the place. Two main themes that I have picked up on are opposition to gun laws and also this kind of notion of anti-police or anti-government action or overreach. And in that case, that's why some of them tacked on to some of the George Floyd protests because it was against police brutality. So it's tough to pin them down on the ideology. And we'll get to that a little bit more in a minute. But you profiled Mike Dunn. He went to the military. He got involved with some of these groups and he started organizing militia groups. And then he full on, there was this kind of evolution that you noticed in him after talking to him over the course of a few months or so. And he finally admitted, yeah, I am a Boogaloo boy. And he kind of rose into this movement here. Tell us about him and how it happened. Back in February, I was working on a story about political polarization and proposed gun laws in Virginia and how that was galvanizing militia activity across the state. And went to some militia events, specifically in the southwest Virginia, where the uptick in this militia activity or people organizing county militias was really happening. And it was in part, I think, because of this, like, because of the polarization and like a spiritual rift that had been happening in Northern Virginia, which is like increasingly wealthy and liberal and the Southwest, which is poor and more conservative and more rural. And anyway, after a few weeks after I got back, COVID-19 hit the US, the world pretty much turned upside down. And so I tabled the story. Honestly, I wasn't sure if it would ever be relevant in, you know, a post or during the COVID-19 world. And then a few months later, I kind of checked back in with one of my main characters, who is this 19-year-old Mike Dunn who I'd interviewed in February, and he had gone from being a gun rights activist and organizing these local militias to being loud and proud of in this movement that I'd been writing about, the Boogaloo movement. And I knew that the movement had pulled in tens of thousands of people to its online network, but it was quite strange to put a face on it. And I kind of wanted to understand what had drawn him in and also what the, some of the nuances were between his identity as like a militia guy, which is many people still quite extreme, and as a boogaloo boy. And for Mike, how would he define his ideology in this? What draws him to the boogaloo movement and makes him want to wear the Hawaiian shirt, carry the gun, go to these events where the militias are gathering? Like, what is it for him? Well, I think that, you know, as you said, he was a Marine and he was medically discharged due to, you know, a heart condition. And he said he learned a lot about guns. And, you know, before going to the Marines, he started being interested in the politics of firearms and gun rights. And then shortly after he got out of the Marines, he started this group called the Virginia Knights, which is a local militia group. But I think one of the things that was important for me to remember was that even back in February, there was kind of a generational divide happening between Mike, who obviously is young, and some of the kind of like older traditional militia types. And, you know, it was pretty clear that back in February, Mike Dunn's pitch and vision for a militia was actually rubbing some people the wrong way. 
and some of the older generation I spoke to, basically their vision was something more along the lines of like a glorified Boy Scout unit who could, you know, they could organize against any gun laws they deemed unfair, but if someone needed their roof tarped during a flood, they could help. But Mike's vision was a lot more paramilitary, even then. And then what Mike said, the turning point for him ends up being a kind of a crystallizing moment for the movement in general, which was in March, the death of 21-year-old Duncan Lemp, who was killed by Maryland police in a no-knock raid. And Lemp was known in anti-government circles online, and he police were executing the warrant after they got a tip that he possessed illegal possession of weapons. And Mike knew Duncan Lemp. They were friends on Facebook. And Lemp has kind of become a martyr for this movement in general. Like, the Boogaloo Boys make TikToks, which are just pictures of Lemp. And they have, you know, Facebook pages, like, dedicated to him. They have said that they want to seek out violence against police officers to like, avenge Duncan Lemp's death. And so for Mike, he said that that was really the big turning point for him too, that he felt a lot angrier. And I feel like you know, Lent's death also gave a kind of a shape and a face and a name to these grievances that were already just like driving this yeah. pretty nascent movement. And it's interesting that you say that for Lemp and what happened there, he was killed by police at a no-knock warrant. And I know that some people in the Boogaloo movement have even attached themselves to the Breonna Taylor movement, getting those officers arrested and accounted for because she was killed after the cops went through a no-knock warrant. So this kind of division of race and all that stuff, is it gets very murky with this group. They're attaching themselves to specific incidences and finding common ground in that, at least. But overall, it seems like the Boogaloo Boys, they find themselves as these younger, more action-oriented generation of militiamen. Even in talking to Mike Dunn, you know, he talks about, well, we're the guys that are willing to go out there and actively defend something. You know, we're going to use the guns if we need to. That's why they go out there and display themselves with them. As you mentioned, kind of paramilitary, and he has that background, and he trains others as well. So they're looking for something to actively start. I know sometimes they talk about the movement and looking for a second civil war, but this is something that they're actively seeking, it seems like. Someone like Mike, he's kind of, I mean, he's he's so young, and he kind of goes back and forth between being like, He's quite careful with his words, but then he'll say something which you think like, oh, that sounds quite radical. Or he'll say, you know, I don't care about being labeled an extremist. Or he'll say, yeah, you know, of course I'm on a watch list. He said, he told me that the FBI had visited him in the months, you know, between I saw him in February and then when I saw him later on in July. So I think it's hard to know. And, and this is the same with like a lot of these movements where it be like just traditional militia movements or the Boogaloo Boys or is how many of them are actually serious or, you know, how much of it is a flame dress up. And how much of it is actually that, you know, they do actually want violence. And I think that's one of the most confusing things about this movement is it's so big. It's so sprawling. There are so many guns and this violent ideology kind of underpinning it. And you just don't really know the difference between, you know, who's for real and who's just playing. Tess Owen, senior reporter at Vice News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this 
Monster Daily Dive.